Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This morning we are in verse 14, starting in verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14. And we will go into verse 1 of chapter 7 as we continue studying through this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Let's hear the word of our Lord, beginning in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Our God, the heavens declare your glory. Creation reveals some knowledge of you. But it is your word that revives, that converts, that gives life to our souls it is your word that is perfect. And it is your word that we desire to know even more than gold and silver. We want to know you as you've revealed yourself. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to work upon our hearts uh, amidst our church. We pray that the Spirit would show us the teaching of your word, give us understanding. Help us to know how to live this out in this day that you've given us. And so we pray these things through Jesus Christ. Amen. You may have heard about this recently. I hope you haven't seen it. But uh, recently on a TV broadcast, there was a performance that included a worship of Satan. Uh, I haven't seen it, don't go try to look it up, but uh, in this performance apparently it involved a worship service for Satan. And it's really not much of a surprise, is it, these days? I mean, maybe 30 years ago we would have been surprised that something like that would be on TV, but these days we just say, okay, well, what do you expect? 
It is a godless world. The entertainment industry uh, loves and serves Satan. That's no surprise, is it? But Satan is the God of this world. And as Jesus told the Pharisees that their father was the devil, anyone who is not of Christ is under the dominion and reign of the devil. And so it might seem a bit obvious to turn off the TV when there's a worship of Satan going on, but there are many ways that Satan works in this world, and those ways are maybe less obvious to a lot of people who call themselves Christians. If I can borrow the image from Pilgrim's Progress, uh, you know there's one scene where Christian battles with the big dragon, Satan, called Apollyon, and that could be like the, the worship service with Satan, where it's very obvious this is Satan and you need to destroy it. But Pilgrim's Progress also contains Vanity Fair. And Christian goes to Vanity Fair, which is exactly what it sounds like. There's a town with a fair going on, and it's full of vanity. Uh, there are drinks and games and entertainments and pleasures money, anything that you could imagine to spend your life on. And it is much harder, I think, for Christians to get out of vanity fair than it is to defeat Apollyon. Many Christians in our world today are distracted and camping out going to vanity fair day after day. And you see, Satan is just as happy either way. Satan is happy when people have a worship service for, for him on TV. But he's just as happy for people who call themselves Christians to spend their lives thinking about money and pleasure, entertainment and fun and all the things that this world values. Because if you get stuck in Vanity Fair, you won't make it to the celestial city. And so as we think about this passage, Paul is going to tell us and warn us that we are not to participate in the sins of the world. And an obvious way would be that if there's a worship service of Satan going on, you shouldn't watch it. You shouldn't be involved in it. But then there are many less obvious ways that Christians do involve themselves in the world. And that's what we also need to pay attention to. And Jesus says in John 17 that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And so we know that we are going to live on this planet Earth and that Christians aren't called to go live in a commune separated from everyone else. Uh, that's not going to solve the problem anyway because you're going to have children and they're not going to be Christians. And so soon enough, you'll have unbelievers in your little commune. So that's not going to work. We need to be in the world. And yet we are called to separate from the world. Now, some of how you live that out is hard to figure out. Uh, maybe you remember back in the 90s, there was a boycott, a Southern Baptist boycotted Disney World. 
And today we would say, well, that's kind of silly. I mean, Christians don't need to boycott Disney World. Well, we would say maybe, yeah, you don't need to do that, but do you value the things of the world? I mean, even those people the, that boycotted Disney, you could boycott Disney and still be just as worldly. You could still just be consuming entertainment all the time. So how do we live these things out? That's not always so easy to work out. But what we need to do is come to the word of God and seriously evaluate ourselves, evaluate our own hearts and our lives, talk to one another about how to live this out, to to challenge and help each other. Because I feel as we go through this sermon, you're going to have a lot of excuses in your head. You're going to say, yeah, but, yeah, but. Come on, are you really saying? That's what you're going to be thinking. And so we'll come back to that. But we need to look at the word of God. What does the Bible say here about participating in the world and its sins? So may the Spirit of God help us as we look through his word. Well, the first part in this passage is Paul pleading with them about their participation in the world. And that's what we'll look at in verses 14 to 16. We're going to spend uh, probably the majority of our time here at the beginning. Now, before we get to verse 14, you got to think about how does this fit into what Paul is saying? Uh, Remember that last week we saw verses 11 to 13, where in those verses, Paul says, my heart is wide open to you. I want to reconcile with you, and I want you to open your hearts to me. And he's going to come back to that in chapter 7, verse 2, where he asks them again to make room, open their hearts to him. And so this passage for today is in that context of Paul wanting them to be reconciled to him. But you remember from verse 12, Paul said that their hearts are restricted. They're restricted in their affections for Paul. And so Paul knows that one of the reasons that their affections are restricted, that their hearts are not open to him, is because they are too involved in the world. And the way that they are going to come and be reconciled to him as the apostle, as the messenger of the gospel, is they need to get out of this system in the world. They have been spending too much time in Vanity Fair. They've been eating too much cotton candy there. And so they have no taste for the message of the gospel that Paul is bringing. They like the cotton candy instead. And so Paul says, get out of the fair. You need to leave the world if you're going to have affection for me, for the preacher of the gospel. And isn't that true for us? That we have so little value for the word of God. So little value for the preaching of the word because we're thinking, who's going to win the Super Bowl tonight? Or we're we're so used to scrolling through Facebook and uh, getting a a little hit every time someone likes our post that to just sit somewhere for 50 minutes or an hour and listen to somebody talk is dreadful to us. 
It's so boring because we're so used to being bombarded with entertainment, with the vanities of the world. And so our affections are restricted for God, for the gospel, for his word, because of our partnership, our participation in the world. So what exactly is going on then in Corinth where they are participating with the world? Well, remember that the big problem here are these people called the super apostles, these false apostles. And they are boasting about themselves and getting the Corinthians to fall into their values and their values are worldly. And you can sum that up with chapter 5, verse 12. They boast about outward appearance rather than what is in the heart. They boast about their physical appearance and how you need to care so much about your physical appearance. About wealth and money and how they're important because they make lots of money and you need to make lots of money too. They boast about their status in society and how it's important for you to have status in this world. They're boasting about everything that's external, everything that the world values. Skills and educations and charisma. And not about godliness. What's in the heart. And so Paul in chapter 11 tells them that they are being led astray like Eve is deceived by the serpent away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. They are led astray from their devotion to Christ because they're starting to value the things that the world values. And that's what Paul is telling them to leave. Stop valuing the things of the world. And so Paul might not be saying to them, hey, you should never go to Disney World again. But he might say to them, if you're living for your next vacation, if you're spending gobs of money on entertainment, if you're spending tons of money on Disney World and going there over and over again all the time, and your, your life is just about amusement and fun, cut that out. Is you're, you're valuing what the world is valuing. So, now let's look at the main command here in verse 14. He gives the command, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he gives us five rhetorical questions to kind of drive home his point. So, what is this command and what does it mean? What does it mean to be unequally yoked? Well, the yoke, as many of you know, has to do with these farm animals pulling a plow like the oxen. And so you would have to put the yoke on the two oxen to pull the cart or to pull the plow. And so they have to be generally the same size. They have to be the same animal. You can't yoke up a giant ox with a little donkey because it's just not going to work. They can't pull together. It's like if you try to walk a, a, two dogs and you have a St. Bernard and you have a little Chihuahua. You, you can't walk them both at the same time. The, the St. Bernard is going to pull you along and the poor little Chihuahua can't keep up. 
So you can't yoke together a big and a small animal. Now this word for being unequally yoked, the only place it's found in the Bible is Leviticus 19, verse 19. And in that verse, it's talking about breeding. Do not breed cattle of different kinds. Uh, And after that, it mentions uh, two kinds of seeds being mixed in your field and two kinds of fabrics being mixed in your clothing. And so in Leviticus, this is the old covenant way for God to show Israel that if they want to be pure, they must separate. And so every time they make a piece of clothing, they are to remember that they need to be separate from the nations around them and not worship those gods. And every time they put seed down on their plot of land, they are to not mix, to remember that they are to not mix with the nations. And Paul is taking an Old Testament instruction, but he's saying, this is true for the church. But not, it's not that he's saying, you can't have two kinds of grass in your yard. You can't wear polyester. You have to wear pure 100% cotton or wool. No, he's, he's applying this as mixture with the world and its sins. This is how the church lives out this commandment. Do not mix yourself in partnership and fellowship with the world and its sins. The church is to be pure. Christians are to be pure and to be separate from the world. Now, you've probably heard uh, that command in the context of dating and marriage. And we're going to see that this isn't the only command, uh, this isn't the only application of the command, but this does apply to dating and marriage. That believers are not to yoke themselves to enter into partnership in marriage with unbelievers. Now we have in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you are married to an unbeliever, you don't have to divorce them. That uh, teaching is, I think, having in mind that you're both unbelievers when you get married, and then you get married and someone becomes a believer. What do you do? Get divorced? No. He's saying you can stay together. But what this passage is talking about is a Christian knowingly entering into marriage with someone who is not a Christian. So, since I don't know when you're ever going to hear a sermon on 614 ever again, uh, I think it is important to spend some time talking about this issue. Uh, Whether you're a little girl, whether you're a teenage girl, a young adult, or a young man, you need to have this set in your head. I will not marry an unbeliever. 
for as far as I can tell. Now, I think this is especially important for young women and for girls because, let's just be honest, there are not a lot of young men out there who are worth marrying. Uh, there are a lot of godly women, and in proportion, there aren't as many godly men. And so the temptation for a godly woman is to want to get married and so to lower the standard. And so if a young woman says, I'm dating this guy, and if I'm the pastor, my first question is, is he a Christian? And then the answer is, well, um, he, he, he goes to church. And I say, well, what church does he go to? Well, he goes to Epic Journey Church. And I say, well, uh, did he go last Sunday? Uh, no, he didn't go last Sunday. He, he's studying a lot. Uh, is he a member of that church? No, he's, he's, not a, he's not a member of that church. And so my advice will be, doesn't sound like a Christian to me. Doesn't sound like someone worth marrying. Young women, you need to find a man who will lead you in marriage and lead his family to be committed to the church, committed to Christ, and to leading you to grow in Christ. And so you need to find a good, a godly, young man. So, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That applies to marriage, but it applies to much more. You see in the, the words that he's using, verses 14 to 16, these all have to do with participation, uh, being involved closely, partnership, fellowship, accord or, or harmony, a portion, which is like an inheritance, or an agreement. So yes, we are going to be in the world, and we are going to know unbelievers, but we cannot have this fellowship, partnership, accord, and portion, and agreement with unbelievers. And so how, how you live that out can, can be hard. What, what exactly does that mean? If I go to Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks, am I in partnership with the immoral activities of Starbucks? Personally, I would say I don't think so. But if I'm watching things that are immoral, if I'm going to places that are immoral, if I'm doing things with people that involve immorality, sin then yes, you are involving yourself in those sins, even though you say, oh, well, well, I don't, I don't, I, I see it on TV, but I, I don't think any bad thoughts. Nonsense. Uh, oh, I go there to, to be with my friends, but I don't do any of the bad stuff. You might not be yourself doing them, but you are fellowshipping. You are involving yourself in partnership with those who are doing these immoral things. So, do not be yoked in partnership. And so let's look at these five questions. Four, here, here's the, the reasons. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Do the, do the authorities, are, are they going to get the, the gangs to, to sign up to help them to find terrorists? 
We would have an outcry if that was happening. Righteousness should not partner with lawlessness. So how could you partner with unbelievers? What fellowship has light with darkness? Light and darkness cannot coexist in the same place at the same time in a room. So how can you, the light, have fellowship with the unbelieving darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or Belial. Uh, this is a word in Hebrew that means wickedness. And so it came to be a name for Satan. Does Christ have any accord with Satan? Do those go together? The word there means harmony. It's the word symphony. Does Christ symphonize with Satan? Of course not. Do a believer and an unbeliever have the same portion? The portion for a believer is heaven, the inheritance of the saints in light. Unbelievers have the exact opposite. So so if they don't have the same goal that they are headed towards, how could they partner together in this life? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Remember the story in 1 Samuel 5? When they capture the Ark of God and the the Philistines bring the Ark into their temple and they have a God named Dagon and they leave the Ark there and they find in the morning Dagon has fallen onto the ground and he's broken in pieces because the presence of God cannot dwell with the presence of idols. In Ezekiel chapter 8, the elders of Israel are bringing these images into the Holy of Holies and they're worshiping. And that's when God decides that he is going to leave the temple. And the temple of Jerusalem is destroyed because they brought idols into the temple. It's impossible for the temple of God to have agreement with idols. So, As we finish this section, uh, again, how you apply this in very specific ways, uh, I encourage you to talk to one another. You can ask me if you want. You can talk to the elders of the church. But here are general categories of ways that uh, values that belong to the world and ways that many Christians are involved with the world and its sins. So number one, I have five. Number one is sexual immorality. This is the biggest one. This is the biggest value of our world that this sinful world is constantly going to throw at you. And so that involves your behavior, your actions, with uh, what you do immorally. It it has to do with the ideologies of what you think about, with the ideologies of things like gender and homosexuality. It has to do with the way that you dress. This world dresses provocatively, and so you should not get your uh, standards of what's appropriate to dress by an immoral world around you. And this includes entertainment. 
the things that are on TV or in the movies, we, we know so much of it is immoral. How can you go to the temple of God one day or even one morning and then later that night put those things in front of your eyes? This should not be for those who are the temple of the living God. So number one, immorality. Number two is money. Think about, do you value the kingdom of God and the health and growth of your soul more than money? Or does money become a higher value to you than your soul and spiritual growth? Is your concern to make more money and to have more money? Think about even when you decide what job to get. Most people, according to the world's thinking, they say, well, I'm going to pick the job that I like the best. That probably is the one where I make the most money. But if you don't have the values of the world, you should be considering the kingdom of God. How does my job help me serve the kingdom? How does me leaving to take a job hurt my local church, the body of which I am a member? Some people, they assume that they are just going to find a job and move somewhere and hope that there's a good church around. And I've known plenty of people who right now are spiritually starving and sick because they can't find a good church. And they hate it. They're miserable in their lives. They have great jobs. They, they got the career that they wanted. And yet they are spiritually miserable. Because they never stop to think. If I, if I value things the way Christ values, maybe I should at least make sure there's a good church. If not, find the good church first and then find a job, even if I might make $10,000 less. So how else uh, do you use your money? Are you saving and spending and hoarding like the rest of the world rather than giving as Christ commands? Or maybe for some of you women, perhaps it's a temptation to put off the calling of being a wife or being a mother because you want to pursue a career, you want to pursue making money. Those are worldly values to simply pursue money. Third, entertainment. We can be distracted and bored because we are constantly participating in the entertainment of the world. Even if it's not necessarily immoral in itself, the world values amusement because they don't believe there's anything else coming. They just want to be entertained to, to just kind of distract themselves from the reality of the hell that's awaiting them. And so many Christians are all engrossed in the very same world. Just love the next 
album coming out. Can't wait for the next show. Can't wait to watch all the movies. And it's just a matter of what you value. Along with entertainment, I would include sports. Uh, This country is obsessed with sports. It is a worldly value to be so obsessed. I find it so strange that Christians even think that it's possible to skip church to take your kids to a sport. It makes no sense. Why would you choose a game over the worship of God? It only makes sense if you value what the world values. So, we are called to not yoke ourselves to this world that is also obsessed with things like sports. Number four, politics. Sometimes Christians can invest themselves and uh, care so much about politics as if the unbelieving world does. And Christians are to have a different perspective on politics. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And the ends don't justify the means in politics. And so sometimes many Christians, they think that they can use sinful things to come to what they see as a good end. But that is a worldly way of thinking. Number five, last one education. Our world values, idolizes education. Degrees and education. Is getting an A more important to you than spiritual growth? Why do you say that you have to study on a Sunday? Who says you have to study on Sunday? Only the world. God God doesn't call us to forsake the worship of him so that we can get an A. These are worldly values. And Christians are immersed in all kinds of these values. So that is Paul's plea to not participate in the values of the world. Now, second... Let's look at his reason. He gives the promise with his plea. He says that we are the temple of the living God. And then he goes on to explain that. In verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, Since we have these promises, we live this way of life. So what he's saying about being the temple of the living God are the promises of God that propel us to leave the world And to live for Christ. Remember that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. And it is through Christ that we are the temple of the living God. So what does that mean? Well, Paul's talking about the Old Testament temple where God would dwell. His presence would be with us. And he would walk among us. And so this was the place that you would go in the Old Testament if you wanted to be with God. And look what Paul says. We are the temple. He doesn't say you. 
He's not talking about you as an individual. He says that in 1 Corinthians 6. But here he says, we, the church, are the temple of the living God. When the church of Christ gets together for worship, we are his temple. His presence is with us. He makes his dwelling among us. He walks among us. He walks among us as as he walked among Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You want a taste of the Garden of Eden? Come to church. In the church, when his people gather for worship, God is actually with us. In Revelation 2, Jesus says that he is walking among the churches, among the lampstands. Christ is actually with us in a mysterious, spiritual way. How can we be the temple of the living God in the presence of Christ and then go join ourselves in the vanity fair that Satan has set up for us? Since we have these promises, we need to cleanse ourselves. And so he says in verse 16, quoting Leviticus 26, God will make his dwelling among us. He will walk among us. He will be our God. We shall be his people. This is the covenant promise. This is what's true for those who belong to Christ. God is your God. You belong to his people. And then he says, therefore, in verse 17, because you're part of the church, the people of God, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Now here he's quoting another Old Testament passage, Isaiah 52, verse 11. Isaiah is talking about people who are in exile in Babylon. And so they've been carried away into Babylon, but now God's promising through Isaiah that they will be restored and brought back. And so he's telling them, look, the highway's cleared. Jerusalem is open to you. You can now leave Babylon, leave the pagans, come out from their midst, he's saying, and be separate from them and touch no unclean thing. Don't touch the idols of Babylon as you're making your way out. Remember that when they left Egypt, he told them, plunder the Egyptians. Take the gold from the Egyptians. But now he's saying, I want to make sure that you understand when you leave Babylon, touch nothing because it's pagan, it's worldliness. Don't be like Achan. Remember in the story of Joshua, when Achan went out with Israel to the battle of Ai and he saw some idols and he wanted to grab a couple of idols and take them home with him. And he was destroyed because he touched the unclean things, even just a few of them. He's like Lot's wife, when she ran out of Sodom, and then she looks back. Probably she's looking back because she's like, oh, I miss Sodom. I kind of liked it there. Sodom was, was green, it was well watered, it was probably a wealthy place. Sodom was the world, and God was destroying the world. And it seems as if she's looking back, even as it's burning down, and she says, man, I would kind of, I kind of like Sodom, the place that's getting burned down. I'd rather be there because my idols are there. 
And we, don't, we don't know that exactly, but, but that's the idea that she was not to look back. She was to leave. And she turns around and she's turned into a pillar of salt because she wanted to touch the unclean things. And so our hearts are like this. As I'm preaching the sermon, you're probably thinking, but, but I like the world. But I like those unclean things. But I like my sin. And God says, don't look back. Don't look back at Sodom. Don't bring out the pagan idols of Babylon with you. You can't have them both because you're the temple of the living God. The idols can't dwell in the temple. You can't be worldly and be a part of the true church of Christ. Leave it all behind. But then look what he says. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the promise. Leave the world behind and be welcomed. Be welcomed by the Father. You might have no friends, but you'll have a father. And you'll have sons and daughters. In other words, if you're going to run out of Babylon, don't worry because you have a home with God. If you are going to leave Sodom, the only reason you would look back is because you like it better there, but you don't need to like it better in Sodom because here is the home of God. You can dwell with the Father. You can be a son and daughter of the Father. And in the church, you can have a home. And you can leave the world with all its wickedness and perversion, but you can belong in the church. Because together... We are the temple of the living God, and all of us, through Christ, are sons and daughters, and we have a Father. So don't worry. You can go out. You can break the yoke. You can break the fellowship and the partnership with unbelievers, because God will be your Father. That's the promise. And so then... In this last part, in verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul concludes with wrapping up the, the plea again. Verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I want you to notice, first that it's since we have these promises. Human nature wants to get this backwards. I will cleanse myself, and then I'll get the promises of God. I will be a better person. I will obey God more, and then he will accept me. But that's not the order. God accepts you. He is a father to you. You are a son or a daughter. You have this promise. He dwells among you as a Christian. And it's because you are in Christ that you must cleanse yourself. It is not to become a son or a daughter, but because you are a son or daughter. God accepts you. Therefore, you must be pure. Cleanse yourself from the defilement 
the filth, the mud that has stuck to you, the uncleanness from you being in Babylon too long, the dirt from living in Sodom because you liked how green it was in Sodom. Cleanse yourself from those remnants of living in the world. Cleanse yourself from defilement of body and spirit. The spirit has to do with things that we worship and we love. The body has to do with the things that we do. So sometimes people say, well, as long as your intentions are good, then it doesn't defile you. No. It has to do with your spirit and your body. You put things in front of your eyes, it will defile you. You go to certain places, it'll defile you. You involve yourself in certain things, your body will be defiled. It's both. It's your intentions, what your heart loves and worships, and it's what you do. And both of these need to be cleansed. And so you are to bring holiness to completion. Here's the encouraging part, is that God will finish the work that he has begun in his people. If you are defiled, stuck with too much of Babylon on you right now, if you belong to Christ, God will work to bring your holiness to its end. And you will be glorified on that final day. And your responsibility is to do what's required of you. You make every effort to make your calling and election sure. You be diligent to add to your faith. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God works within you. Bring holiness completion in the fear of God. The fear of God should motivate our life. Who cares if people think we're weird? Who cares if people think our lives are boring? We live in the fear of God. We stand before God for how we live. So we may we live for him and touch no unclean thing. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your holiness and that you give us these promises that we are your temple. Thank you for the great privilege of you dwelling among us and of making us sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would love Christ, that we would love you as our Father, and that we would live in fear of you. May your Spirit give us wisdom and discernment. Help us to know how to live this out, how to bring holiness to completion. And may we be a holy people, not yoked with 
the unbelieving world and all of its sins. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.